Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? Tago Kane and the Corpse by Douglas Hyde There was once a grown-up lad in the county Leitrim, and he was strong and lively, and the son of a rich farmer. His father had plenty of money, and he did not spare it on the son. Accordingly, when the boy grew up, he liked sport better than work, and as his father had no other children, he loved this one so much that he allowed him to do in everything just as he pleased himself. He was very extravagant, and he used to scatter the gold money as another person would scatter the white. He was seldom to be found at home, but if there was a fair or a race or a gathering within ten miles of him, you were dead certain to find him there. And he seldom spent a night in his father's house, but he always used to be out rambling, and like Sean Bui long ago, there was Grogach Kalin Imralachalenye, the love of every girl in the breast of his shirt. And it's many a kiss he got, and he gave, for he was very handsome, and there wasn't a girl in the country but would fall in love with him, only for him to fasten his two eyes on her, and it was for that someone made this run on him. Look at the rogue, it's for kisses he's rambling, it isn't much wonder, for that was his way, he's like an old hedgehog, at night he'll be scrambling from this place to that, but he'll sleep in the day. At last, he became very wild and unruly. He wasn't to be seen day or night in his father's house, but was always rambling or going on his Cayley from place to place and from house to house, so that the old people used to shake their heads and say to one another, It's easy seen what will happen to the land when the old man dies. His son will run through it in a year and it won't stand him that long itself. He used to be always gambling and card-playing and drinking, but his father never minded his bad habits and never punished him. But it happened one day that the old man was told that the son had ruined the character of a girl in the neighbourhood, and he was greatly angry, and he called the son to him and said to him quietly and sensibly, A Vic, says he, you know I loved you greatly up to this, and I never stopped you from doing your choice thing, whatever it was, and I kept plenty of money with you, and I always hoped to leave you the house and the land, and all I had after myself would be gone. But I heard a story of you today that has disgusted me with you. I cannot tell you the grief that I felt when I heard such a thing of you, and I tell you now plainly that unless you marry that girl, I leave house and land and everything to my brother's son. I never could leave it to anyone who would make so bad a use of it as you do yourself, deceiving women and coaxing girls. Settle with yourself now whether you'll marry that girl and get my land as a fortune with her, or refuse to marry her and give up all that was coming to you, and tell me in the morning which of the two things you have chosen. Och, Domno Shiri, father, you wouldn't say that to me, and I such a good son as I am. Who told you I wouldn't marry the girl, says he? But his father was gone, and the lad knew well enough that he would keep his word too, and he was greatly troubled in his mind, for as quiet and as kind as the father was, 
He never went back on a word that he had once said, and there wasn't another man in the country who was harder to bend than he was. The boy did not rightly know what to do. He was in love with the girl indeed, and he hoped to marry her some time or other, but he would much sooner have remained another while as he was and follow on at his old tricks, drinking, sporting and playing cards. And along with that, he was angry that his father should order him to marry and should threaten him if he did not do it. Isn't my father a great fool, says he to himself. I was ready enough, and only too anxious to marry Mary, and now, since he threatened me, faith, I've a great mind to let it go another while. His mind was so much excited that he remained between two notions as to what he should do. He walked out into the night at last to cool his heated blood, and went onto the road. He lit a pipe, and as the night was fine, he walked on and walked on, until the quick pace made him begin to forget his trouble. The night was bright, and the moon half full. There was not a breath of wind blowing, and the air was calm and mild. He walked on for nearly three hours, when he suddenly remembered that it was late in the night, and time for him to turn. Musha, I think I forgot myself, says he. It must be near twelve o'clock now. The word was hardly out of his mouth when he heard the sound of many voices and the trampling of feet on the road before him. I don't know who can be out so late at night as this, and on such a lonely road, said he to himself. He stood listening, and he heard the voices of many people talking, but he could not understand what they were saying. Oh, Wirra, says he, I'm afraid. It's not Irish or English they have. It can't be their Frenchmen. He went on a couple of yards further, and he saw well enough for the light of the moon a band of little people coming towards him, and they were carrying something big and heavy with them. Oh, murder, says he to himself. Sure, it can't be that they're the good people that's in it. Every rib of hair that was on his head stood up, and there fell a shaking on his bones, for he saw that they were coming to him fast. He looked at them again, and perceived that there were about twenty little men in it, and there was not a man at all of them higher than about three feet, or three feet and a half, and some of them were grey, and seemed very old. He looked again, but he could not make out what was the heavy thing they were carrying, until they came up to him, and then they stood all round about him. They threw the heavy thing down on the road, and he saw on the spot that it was a dead body. He became as cold as the death, and there was not a drop of blood running in his veins when an old little grey manine came up to him and said, Isn't it lucky we met you, Teg O'Kane? Poor Teg could not bring out a word at all, nor open his lips if he were to get the world for it. So he gave no answer. Teg O'Kane, said the little grey man again, Isn't it timely you met us? Teg could not answer him. Teg O'Kane, says he, for the third time, isn't it lucky and timely that we met you? But Teg remained silent, for he was afraid to return an answer, and his tongue was as if it was tied to the roof of his mouth. The little grey man turned to his companions, and there was joy in his bright little eye. And now, says he, Teg O'Kane hasn't a word. We can do with him what we please. Teg, Teg, says he, 
You're living a bad life, and we can make a slave of you now, and you cannot withstand us, for there's no use in trying to go against us. Lift that corpse. Teg was so frightened that he was only able to utter the two words, I won't, for as frightened as he was, he was obstinate and stiff, the same as ever. Teg O'Cain won't lift the corpse, said the little man in with a wicked little laugh, for all the world like the breaking of a lock of dry kippeens, and with a little harsh voice like the striking of a cracked bell. Teg O'Cain won't lift the corpse, make him lift it. And before the word was out of his mouth, they had all gathered round poor Teg, and they all talking and laughing through each other. Teg tried to run from them, but they followed him, and a man of them stretched out his foot before him as he ran so that Teg was thrown in a heap on the road. Then, before he could rise up, the fairies caught him, some by the hands and some by the feet, and they held him tight in a way that he could not stir with his face against the ground. Six or seven of them raised the body then and pulled it over to him and left it down on his back. The breast of the corpse was squeezed against Teg's back and shoulders, and the arms of the corpse were thrown around Teg's neck. Then they stood back from him a couple of yards and let him get up. He rose, foaming at the mouth and cursing, and he shook himself, thinking to throw the corpse off his back. But his fear and his wonder were great when he found that the two arms had a tight hold round his own neck and that the two legs were squeezing his hips firmly, and that however strongly he tried, he could not throw it off any more than a horse can throw off its saddle. He was terribly frightened then, and he thought he was lost. A horn forever, said he to himself. It's the bad life I'm leading that has given the good people this power over me. I promise to God and Mary, Peter and Paul, Porrig and Breege, that I'll mend my ways for as long as I have to live, if I come clear out of this danger, and I'll marry the girl. The little grey man came up to him again and said to him, Now, Tegin, says he, you didn't lift the body when I told you to lift it, and see how you were made to lift it. Perhaps when I tell you to bury it, you won't bury it until you're made to bury it. Anything at all that I can do for your honour, said Teg, I'll do it. For he was getting sense already, and if it had not been for the great fear that was on him, he would never have let that civil word slip out of his mouth. The little man laughed a sort of laugh again. You're getting quiet now, Teg, says he. I'll go bail, but you'll be quiet enough before I'm done with you. Listen to me now, Teg O'Kane, and if you don't obey me in all I'm telling you to do, you'll repent it. You must carry with you this corpse that is on your back, the Temple Damus, and you must bring it into the church with you, and make a grave for it in the very middle of the church, and you must raise up the flags, and put them down again the very same day, and you must carry the clay out of the church, and leave the place as it was when you came, so that no one could know that there had been anything changed. But that's not all. Maybe that the body won't be allowed to be buried in that church. Perhaps some other man has the bed. And if so, it's likely he won't share it with this one. If you don't get leave to bury it in Temple Damus, 
you must carry it to Carrigard Vicaris and bury it in the churchyard there. And if you don't get into that place, take it with you to Temple Dronan. And if that churchyard is closed on you, take it to Imlog Father. And if you're not able to bury it there, you've no more to do than take it to Kilbridge. And you can bury it there without hindrance. I cannot tell you what one on these churches is the one where you will have leave to bury the corpse under the clay, but I know that it will be allowed you to bury him at some church or other of them. If you do this work rightly, we will be thankful to you, and you will have no cause to grieve. But if you are slow or lazy, believe me, we shall take satisfaction of you. When the grey little man had done speaking, his comrades laughed and clapped their hands together. Glick, glick, whee, whee, they all cried. Go on, go on, you have eight hours before you till daybreak. And if you haven't this man buried before the sun rises, you are lost. They struck a fist in the foot behind him and drove him on in the road. He was obliged to walk and to walk fast, for they gave him no rest. He thought himself that there was not a wet path or a dirty boreen or a crooked contrary road in the whole county that he had not walked that night. The night was at times very dark, and whenever there would come a cloud across the moon he could see nothing, and then he used often to fall. Sometimes he was hurt, and sometimes he escaped, but he was obliged always to rise on the moment and to hurry on. Sometimes the moon would break out clearly, and then he would look behind him and see the little people following at his back, and he heard them speaking among themselves, talking and crying out, and screaming like a flock of seagulls, and if he was to save his soul, he never understood as much as one word of what they were saying. He did not know how far he had walked when at last one of them cried out to him, Stop here! He stood and they all gathered around him. Do you see those withered trees over there? says the old boy to him again. Temple Damis is among those trees, and you must go in there by yourself, for we cannot follow you or go with you. We must remain here. Go on boldly. Teg looked from him, and he saw a high wall that was in places half broken down, and an old grey church on the inside of the wall and about a dozen withered old trees scattered here and there round it. There was neither leaf nor twig on any of them, but their bare crooked branches were stretched out like the arms of an angry man when he threatens. He had no help for it, but was obliged to go forward. He was a couple of hundred yards from the church when he walked on, and never looked behind him until he came to the gate of the churchyard. The old gate was thrown down, and he had no difficulty in entering. He turned then to see if any of the little people were following him, but there came a cloud over the moon, and the night became so dark that he could see nothing. He went into the churchyard, and he walked up the grassy old pathway leading to the church. When he reached the door, he found it locked. The door was large and strong, and he did not know what to do. At last he drew out his knife with difficulty, and stuck it in the wood to try if it were not rotten but it was not. Now, says he to himself, I have no more to do. The door is shut, and I cannot open it. Before the words were rightly shaped in his own mind, a voice in his ear said to him, 
searched for the key on the top of the door or on the wall. He started. Who was that speaking to me? He cried, turning round, but he saw no one. The voice said again in his ear, Search for the key on the top of the door or on the wall. What's that? says he, and the sweat running from his forehead. Who spoke to me? It's I, the corpse that spoke to you, said the voice. Can you talk? said Teg. Now and again, said the corpse. Teg searched for the key, and he found it on top of the wall. He was too much frightened to say any more, but he opened the door wide and as quickly as he could. And he went in, with the corpse on his back. It was as dark as pitch inside, and poor Teg began to shake and tremble. Light the candle, said the corpse. Teg put his hand in his pocket as well as he was able, and drew out a flint and steel. He struck a spark out of it and lit a burnt rag he had in his pocket. He blew it until it made a flame, and he looked around him. The church was very ancient, and part of the wall was broken down. The windows were blown in or cracked, and the timbers of the seats were rotten. There were six or seven old iron candlesticks left there still, and in one of these candlesticks Teg found the stump of an old candle, and he lit it. He was still looking round him in that strange and horrid place in which he found himself when the cold corpse whispered in his ear, Bury me now, bury me now, there is a spade, and turn the ground. Teg looked from him, and he saw a spade lying beside the altar. He took it up, and he placed the blade under a flag that was in the middle of the aisle, and leaning all his weight on the handle of the spade, he raised it. When the first flag was raised, it was not hard to raise the others near it, and he moved three or four of them out of their places. The clay that was under them was soft and easy to dig, but he had not thrown up more than three or four shovelfuls when he felt the iron touch something soft like flesh. He threw up three or four more shovelfuls from around it, and then he saw that it was another body that was buried in the same place. I'm afraid I'll never be allowed to bury the two bodies in the same hole, said Teg in his own mind. You corpse there on my back, says he. Will you be satisfied if I bury you down here? But the corpse never answered him a word. That's a good sign, said Teg to himself. Maybe he's getting quiet. And he thrust the spade down into the earth again. Perhaps he hurt the flesh of the other body. For the dead man that was buried there stood up in the grave and shouted an awful shout, Ho, ho, ho! Go, 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 or you're a dead, dead, dead man! And then he fell back into the grave again. Teg said afterwards that of all the wonderful things he saw that night, that was the most awful to him. His hair stood upright on his head like the bristles of a pig. The cold sweat ran off his face, and then came a tremor all over his bones until he thought that he must fall. But after a while he became bolder. When he saw that the second corpse remained lying quietly there, and he threw in the clay on it again, and he smoothed it overhead, and he laid down the flags carefully as they had been before, it can't be that he'll rise up any more, said he. He went down the aisle a little further, and drew near to the door and began raising the flags again, looking for another bed for the corpse on his back. 
He took up three or four flags and put them aside, and then he dug the clay. He was not long digging until he laid bare an old woman without a thread upon her but her shirt. She was more lively than the first corpse, for he had scarcely taken any of the clay away from about her when she sat up and began to cry, Ho, ho, you boddach! Ha, you boddach! Where has he been that he got no bed? Poor Teg drew back, and when she found that she was getting no answer, she closed her eyes gently, lost her vigour, and fell back quietly and slowly under the clay. Teg did to her as he had done to the man. He threw the clay back on her and left the flags down overhead. They began digging again near the door, but before he had thrown up more than a couple of shovelfuls, he noticed a man's hand laid bare by the spade. By my soul, I'll go no further then, said he to himself. What use is it for me? And he threw the clay in again on it and settled the flags as they had been before. He left the church then, and his heart was heavy enough. But he shut the door and locked it and left the key where he found it. He sat down on a tombstone that was near the door and began thinking. He was in great doubt what he should do. He laid his face between his two hands and cried for grief and fatigue, since he was dead certain at this time that he would never come home alive. He made another attempt to loosen the hands of the corpse that was squeezed round his neck, but they were as tight as if they were clamped, and the more he tried to loosen them, the tighter they squeezed him. He was going to sit down once more when the cold, horrid lips of the dead man said to him, Karik Advik Oris, and he remembered the command of the good people to bring the corpse with him to that place if he should be unable to bury it where he had been. He rose up and looked about him. I don't know the way, he said. As soon as he had uttered the word, the corpse stretched out suddenly its left hand that had been tightened round his neck and kept it pointing out, showing him the road he ought to follow. Teg went in the direction that the fingers were stretched and passed out of the churchyard. He found himself on an old, rutty, stony road, and he stood still again, not knowing where to turn. The corpse stretched out its bony hand a second time and pointed out to him another road, not the road by which he had come when approaching the old church. Teg followed that road, and whenever he came to a path or road meeting it, the corpse always stretched out its hand and pointed with its fingers, showing him the way he was to take. Many was the crossroad he turned down, and many was the crooked boreen he walked, until he saw from him an old burying ground at last, beside the road, but there was neither church nor chapel nor any other building in it. The corpse squeezed him tightly, and he stood. Bury me, bury me in the burying ground, said the voice. Teg drew over towards the old burying place, and he was not more than about twenty yards from it, when raising his eyes he saw hundreds and hundreds of ghosts, men, women, and children, sitting on the top of the wall round about, or standing on the inside of it, or running backwards and forwards and pointing at him while he could see their mouths opening and shutting as if they were speaking, though he heard no word nor any sound among them at all. He was afraid to go forward, so he stood where he was, and the moment he stood, all the ghosts became quiet 
and ceased moving. Then Teg understood that it was trying to keep him from going in that they were. He walked a couple of yards forwards and immediately the whole crowd rushed together towards the spot to which he was moving, so they stood so thickly together that it seemed to him that he never could break through them, even though he had a mind to try. But he had no mind to try it. He went back broken and dispirited, and when he had gone a couple of hundred yards from the burying ground he stood again, for he did not know what way he was to go. He heard the voice of the corpse in his ears saying, Temple Ronan, and the skinny hand was stretched out again, pointing out the road. As tired as he was, he had to walk, and the road was neither short nor even. The night was darker than ever, and it was difficult to make his way. Many was the toss he got, and many a bruise they left on his body. At last he saw Temple Ronan from him in the distance, standing in the middle of the burying ground. He moved over towards it, and thought he was all right and safe when he saw no ghosts nor anything else on the wall, and he thought he would never be hindered now from leaving his load off him at last. He moved over to the gate, but as he was passing it, he tripped on the threshold. Before he could recover himself, something that he could not see seized him by the neck, by the hands, and by the feet, and bruised him, and shook him, and shocked him, till he was nearly dead. And at last he was lifted up and carried more than a hundred yards from that place, and then thrown down in an old dyke, with the corpse still clinging to him. He rose up bruised and sore, but feared to go near the place again, for he had seen nothing the time he was thrown down and carried away. You corpse, up on my back, said he. Shall I go over again to the churchyard? But the corpse never answered him. That's a sign that you don't wish me to try it again, said Teig. He was now in great doubt as to what he ought to do, when the corpse spoke in his ear and said, Imlog, father. Oh, murder, said Teig. Must I bring you there? If you keep me long walking like this, I'll tell you I'll fall under you. He went on, however, in the direction the corpse pointed out to him. He could not have told himself how long he had been going when the dead man behind suddenly squeezed him and said, There! Teg looked from him and saw a little low wall that was so broken down in places that it was no wall at all. It was in a great wide field in from the road, and only for three or four great stones at the corners that were more like rocks than stones, there was nothing to show that there was either graveyard nor burying ground there. Is this him, Log Father? Shall I bury you here? said Teg. Yes, said the voice. But I see no grave or gravestone, only this pile of stones, said Teg. The corpse did not answer, but stretched out its long, fleshless hand to show Teg the direction in which he was to go. Teg went on accordingly, but he was greatly terrified, for he remembered what had happened to him at the last place. He went on, with his heart in his mouth, as he said to himself afterwards, but when he came to within fifteen or twenty yards of the little low square wall, there broke out a flash of lightning, bright yellow and red, with blue streaks in it, 
and went around about the wall in one course, and it swept by as fast as the swallow in the clouds. And the longer Teig remained looking at it, the faster it went, till at last it became like a bright ring of flame around the old graveyard, which no one could pass without being burned by it. Teig never saw from the time he was born, and never saw afterwards, so wonderful or so splendid a sight as that. Round went the flame, white and yellow and blue sparks leaping out from it as it went, and although at first it had been no more than a thin, narrow line, it increased slowly until it was at last a great, broad band, and it was continually getting broader and higher and throwing out more brilliant sparks, till there was never a colour on the ridge of the earth that was not to be seen in that fire and lightning never shone, and flame never flamed that was so shining and so bright as that. Teg was amazed. He was half dead with fatigue, and he had no courage left to approach the wall. There fell a mist over his eyes, and there came a suron in his head, and he was obliged to sit down upon a great stone to recover himself. He could see nothing but the light and he could hear nothing but the whir of it as it shot round the paddock faster than a flash of lightning. As he sat there on the stone, the voice whispered once more in his ear, Kilbridge, and the dead man squeezed him so tightly that he cried out. He rose again, sick, tired and trembling, and went forward as he was directed. The wind was cold, and the road was bad and the load upon his back was heavy, and the night was dark, and he himself was nearly worn out, and if he had very much farther to go, he must have fallen dead under his burden. At last the corpse stretched out his hand and said to him, Bury me there. This is the last burying place, said Teg in his own mind, and the little grey man said I'd be allowed to bury him in some of them, so it, it must be this. It can't be, but they let him in here. The first faint streak of the ring of day was appearing in the east, and the clouds were beginning to catch fire, but it was darker than ever, for the moon had set, and there were no stars. Make haste, make haste, said the corpse, and Teg hurried forward as well as he could to the graveyard, which was a little place on a bare hill, with only a few graves in it. He walked boldly in through the open gate, and nothing touched him, nor did he either hear nor see anything. He came to the middle of the ground, and then stood up and looked round him for a spade and shovel to make a grave. As he was turning round and searching, he suddenly perceived what startled him greatly, a newly dug grave right before him. He moved over to it and looked down, and there at the bottom he saw a black coffin. He clambered down into the hole and lifted the lid and found that, as he thought it would be, the coffin was empty. He had hardly mounted up out of the hole and was standing on the brink when the corpse, which had clung to him for more than eight hours, suddenly relaxed its hold on his neck and loosened its shins from round his hips and sank down with a plop into the open coffin. Teg fell down on his two knees at the brink of the grave and gave thanks to God. He made no delay then, but pressed down the coffin lid in its place 
and threw in the clay over it with his two hands, and when the grave was filled up, he stamped and leaped on it with his two feet until it was firm and hard, and then he left the place. The sun was fast rising as he finished his work, and the first thing he did was to return to the road and look out for a house to rest himself in. He found an inn at last, and lay down upon a bed there and slept till night. Then he rose up and ate a little, and fell asleep again till morning. When he awoke in the morning he hired a horse and rode home. He was more than twenty-six miles from home where he was, and he had come all that way with the dead body on his back in one night. All the people at his own home thought that he must have left the country, and they rejoiced greatly when they saw him come back. Everyone began asking him where he had been, but he would not tell anyone except his father. He was a changed man from that day. He never drank too much. He never lost his money over cards, and especially he would not take the world and be out late by himself of a dark night. He was not a fortnight at home until he married Mary, the girl he had been in love with, and it's at their wedding the sport was, and it's he was the happy man from that day forward, and it's all I wish that we may be as happy as he was. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Everybody dies, don't they? But some come back, apparently. Anyway, that was Tego Kane and the Corpse by Douglas Hyde. So I wanted to say something about Douglas Hyde. First of all, I've wanted to do an Irish story for a long time, and I was in my local second-hand bookshop, and I came across a book of... Irish Ghost Stories, selected by Rosemary Gray, which is a Wordsworth edition. Now, Wordsworth did a whole ton of, um, back in the day, they did a whole a ton of um, collections of ghost stories and published a lot of authors who'd gone out of print because their forte, Wordsworth Books, was to take out of print um, authors. So I suppose it's cheaper, so you don't have to give them advances or anything because they're dead. A lot of those are hard to get now, which is a great pity. Um, if you follow things like this on the internet and Instagram and Twitter, you'll see a guy called Peter Sender who uh, does some, on SoundCloud, you can hear him reading out stories. He's, he's good and um, he has an academic interest in these things, I think. Uh, I follow him on Instagram and, uh, you know, he's got a massive collection of these books. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with nothing. So Douglas Hyde, let's say something about him. Douglas Hyde was born in County Roscommon in 1880. Now his father was a vicar or a rector of the Church of Ireland. Now, the Church of Ireland in, in, is still, and was then, certainly the Protestant church in in uh, Ireland, like the Church of England and the Church of Wales, is was the established Protestant church founded by Henry VIII back in the day. And most people in Ireland, as you know, did not follow that. Even even the, a lot of the Protestants don't follow the Church of Ireland uh, because they're nonconformists, uh, the Protestants that exist in Ireland. So um, Douglas Hyde's father was of that ilk. Um, he moved around. He had a parish in the west of Ireland in County Sligo. And from a very early age, Douglas Hyde, even though he was Protestant, was very interested in Ireland and Irish, and particularly the Irish language. And he, when he was 20, he joined the Society for the Preservation of the Irish Language. And then in 1893, when he was 33, he founded Conran the Gaelic, which is the Irish League, which was the, is still is the 
Society for the Preservation and Promotion of the Irish Language. It's not a government society. It's a, um, and they have a club. They have lots of things. We used to go to Club Chonon Gaelica in Dublin and drink Guinness and speak in Irish. It was super cool back in the day when I was a young man. So there we are. So he was an academic and he had a bardic name and Crevin Evin, the sweet branchlet. So Crevin is a little tree. Creve is a tree. Crevin, so you get these diminutives and you hear this in the story actually, a manine. They would, they would add them to English words as well. So a man, a manine is a little man and and, you know, tagine is a little tag, you know, so you add in smithereen. This is, uh, ended up in English as a productive, uh, what do you call it, ending, a diminutive anyway. So the sweet branchlet, it's, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have picked that myself for me. I would, I would have wanted something a bit more fierce, you know, like the um, raging bull or something like that, whatever that is. And taru, some of the other word of raging is, um, and Taru Tonarach, the thunderous bull. Yeah, that maybe would have been my bardic name. But anyway, I digress as usual. So um, he was an academic and uh, he was elected to the Irish Senate. He was a supporter of Irish independence and he was elected to the Irish Senate, but was opposed by the Catholic Church because he was a Protestant and because he'd spoken up in favour of divorce, which the church clearly doesn't agree with. But nevertheless, he got elected. And Eamon de Valera, who was the first Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland, um, wanted, made him president in 38, and there were a couple of reasons for this. So he was, he was a neutral guy. He was, he was not massively political. He was an academic. He was respected. He um, clearly was committed to Irish culture. And he was a Protestant. And de Valera was keen to make the point that Irish nationalism was not a Catholic-only affair, that it wasn't divided. So, you know, you could be an Irish nationalist and a Protestant, basically, rather than how it has been painted as being the preserve of, of um, Catholics only, which and people still talk about that in, you know, Catholics and Protestants. It's, it, to me, it's not that at all. It's, that is not the division. You know, the division is between nationalists who, who want a, a free Ireland and loyalists who want the island of Ireland to become, remain part of the British uh, possessions, I suppose. I don't know. But probably all these words are so loaded, aren't they? So let's quickly avoid the politics. So anyway, the other thing was he, in, the, in the 1930s, it wasn't clear after the declaration of Irish independence uh, that the King of England was still the head of state. You know, like you've got um, Canada and Australia and, you know, all the old dominions South Africa and places like this, and the king or the queen is still head of state in Canada and Australia and New Zealand. You know, many of the other republics, Pakistan, India, South Africa, she is no longer the head of state. But the point was de Valera wanted to make the point that, that Ireland had its own president. And this was, when this was done in 38, it had a, a big effect. Um, the, the, the loyalist community, including the British press, called it a slight upon the king. They felt that the, the, mon the English monarchy had been, or the British monarchy, had been slighted. Okay, but it was a deliberate point. Anyway, so back to the story. The story is a very folk story, isn't it? It feels like um, we're, we're delving into pre-literature. So what I mean by that is, as the 18th, 19th centuries uh, went on their way, 20th century, 21st century, 
the rise of formal literature written by professional writers who would devise things from their own imaginations um, started. But before that, that wasn't didn't happen. So what happened in the old days was there were traditional stories and, you know, you weren't supposed to make stuff up. You were supposed to transmit, um, but inevitably a storyteller, and there were professional storytellers like professional musicians, would, particularly in Ireland, the Shanachi, who would, who would go from community to community. But that was true all over, certainly, certainly Europe and probably the world. There were storytellers who would entertain people and go around and tell stories, and these would be traditional stories, and there would be stories that were passed on. Now, each storyteller may embellish them, but there were there were techniques. So it was like there was no premium put on on originality, on on devising new stories. You simply transmitted the old favourites. So it's a very different thing. Now, Douglas Hyde may well have collected this story from, I don't know actually whether it is a folk story or whether he invented it, but it's certainly written to feel like a traditional story that's been passed down in communities. And there are lots of, you know, the repetition, that's a very traditional storyteller technique to keep repeating things. Things happen three times, and these are just techniques to do it. Uh, I, I particularly like this because of the those Irish in it. It wasn't massively scary. I guess it was a morality tale in the end because he'd been a bad lad. He wasn't, he wasn't an evil person, but he'd been a bit of a wastrel. And this was his comeuppance he made to the fairy folk. Now, I think it's really interesting that the fairy folk do not speak English and neither do they speak Irish. They speak, speak their own language. So when, and Douglas Hyde would have known all of this, you know, he, he would know everything I'm about to say and more. So the issue is, if you look, there's a, there's a book called Laur Gawala Erin, which is a, the book of the taking of Ireland and the, and the book of invasions, it's called. And it, it is a history. It's a, not a, a modern history in that it's not accurate. It hasn't checked its sources, but it's a traditional history of Ireland and, and the, the different people who came to Ireland. So the Gaels, the Gaelic-speaking people, came with uh, Mila Spagna, who was the warrior of Spain. So the tradition is that, the, the, that Ireland was colonised from Spain. And there, there are a couple of uh, interesting points here. The Romans believed, one of the reasons they had an idea that it would conquer Ireland, though they never did, was that they thought they could then get to Spain from it they underestimated how far Ireland is from Spain. But there is this tradition of, and, and you know, fishermen go up the coast, the Atlantic coast from Spain, North Africa even, but round Spain, up the coast of France, Brittany, Ireland, Cornwall, uh, up into the west of Scotland. So there is this tradition. And um, interestingly, the kind of Celtic spoken in Ireland is Q-Celtic, um, and we won't go into why it is called Q-Celtic, but the, the, the kind of Celtic spoken in Spain was Q-Celtic as well. And the, the people will say, oh, that means nothing. But it's interesting. And also, genetically, uh, the Atlantic people are, we know that from DNA now, that the after the Ice Age, there were two routes of colonization of the of, of the west of Europe, and one was up the Atlantic coast, and the other was from farming people across through Europe. And so many of the people of the West of Britain, you know, and the Bretons and the Cornish and the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish are dark haired as if they've come from a hot place, you know, because um, dark hair is selected for sunshine, isn't it? This is all a, a big preamble to say that well, the Irish-speaking people came from Spain, but before them was a magical race of gods called the Tuar Jedanon, the people of the goddess Danu, probably. Tuar Jedanon. Before them were people called the Firbolg, the, the bagmen. 
and before them were the Foiwara, the people from under the sea. So it was it was said that when the Gaels came to Ireland and conquered Ireland, the Tuajedanon went underground and lived in the fairy mounds, the, the places of the Shi, the, the people of the peaceful people, the Dina Shi, and they they were not Gaels, so they didn't speak Irish. And I think that's the point here. They are pre-Gaelic people, and they are little, and they are magical. There is no clear association in the books with them, with the world of the dead, but clearly the two things are getting contaminated because um, these are magical supernatural creatures and the dead, you know, talking corpses. So there is an association between the dead and the fairy folk. Funnily enough, Celtic legend suggests that there are whole loads of islands off to the west of Europe and these are increasingly magical and some of them are where the dead go, which was, of course, what the ancient Egyptians said, the, where the sun goes down. So the dead live in the west, where the, sun, the land where the sun has gone down. So on the Nile, the west bank of the Nile is where the, the pharaohs were buried. And, it, you know, it's probably an archetypal thing there. But... Oh, that was a big ramble. I probably could have said it in about six words. But anyway, it's a rainy day here and everything's going well. Settling down into a routine now with the, with the house being moved and um, I'm going to get back into doing YouTube and podcasting. I probably won't be doing as much YouTubing because there is a law of diminishing returns and the interesting thing is the more effort I've put into it has not resulted in more... Uh, growth or benefit. So I'm going to settle down to doing one, that's my theory, a YouTube video a week and one podcast a week. And we'll see how we get on from there. Because there's other things I want to do. I, I want to write another novel and I'm doing my stories and I'm doing audiobooks. So there's plenty going on. Anyway, there we are. That's it. This week, an Irish story. I'm sorry about the accent. I've, I, I, I wandered in my accent. I started off doing it in my normal accent and then I did the, I thought, well, I can't do the quotes in my normal accent because they're clearly written as if they're spoken in like a broad Irish accent. So then when I did the quotes, that contaminated me doing the narrative. And I thought, well, the fairy folk are going to have very broad sort of County Cork accents. Um, okay, so I apologise, everybody, but I hope you're all well. Okay, and thank you for your continuing support. Thank you to my Patreons and my members, because you are fantastic. You are a real engine of my um, activity now, because I'm doing a members as well as doing a, a, a podcast for the world. I'm doing a members-only story as well. Every uh, And I'm a bit more adventurous with those. They tend to be a bit more modern and a bit more horrific. So if you like that kind of thing, think about becoming either a Patreon or a member of the YouTube channel. That's a call to action. I didn't even know it was. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?